welcome to another episode of Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and on this episode, we are featuring James Canton, Sacred Grounds. James Canton is the author of the Oak Papers, Ancient Wanderings, Journeys into Prehistoric Britain, and his latest book, Grounded, A Journey into the Landscape of Our Ancestors. His writings are mainly concerned with the ties between nature, literature, and the environment. By exploring the distant past, James brings the sacred to the present. James also teaches the MA in Wild Writing at the University of Essex in the UK. James joins me from his home in Essex to talk about what we can learn from and how we are connected to our sacred grounds. James, welcome to Nature Revisited, and thank you for being here. Let's start at the beginning. When did you first become interested in prehistoric Britain? Stefan, I think that goes, I think that probably goes back into childhood. A lot of people raised in English families were often kind of taken on wet holidays to, to cold stones all over Britain. It was a sort of standard technique of kind of boring your children as much as anything. I think in my undergraduate years, I was studying down in the West Country. I would get a lift from a friend backwards and forwards from London where I grew up. And we drive what's known as the A303 right beside Stonehenge. And you could just drive along in those days and you could happily just, just have a look at Stonehenge. I think I genuinely think that was one of those kind of regular visitations that kind of encouraged in me that kind of sense of delving into something distant and past. But I guess in a lot of ways that kind of crystallized in from my 20s I became very interested. I spent a certain amount of time traveling around the world looking at prehistoric layering to our, our world. And when I returned to Britain, that was only natural to be spending time exploring the prehistory of Britain as well. So there were, there were quite a lot of car journeys with maps flapping in the wind and tents put up in various places. I think that's been a thing since my 20s, certainly. So you teach a class at the University of Essex called Wild Writing. What is the connection to that class in ancient England? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the Wild Writing is, is specifically a master's class in literature, landscape, and the environment. It very much looks at various literatures, various narratives, that have been written about places in Britain and further afield. You know, we might look at, I don't know, Wendell Berry. We might look at Barry Lopez, these great American writers as well. And looking at, at people like Robert Moore Chimera in more recent times, these narratives where people explore the association and the connection between the indigenous peoples in a space, in a place, and that, that kind of tracing that across time. If not specifically ancient England, it's about 
the capacity to connect with ancient England and perhaps draw the line between ancient England and, and modern England or between ancient California, between ancient California and modern California. So this idea of linearity and connectivity, I think, across time becomes very important. And you also wrote the book, The Oak Papers. What inspired you to write that book? And what were some of the important lessons you learned? Oak Papers was, was an interesting book for me. It, I wrote it over a number of years. It came out of a series of meetings, if you like, with oak trees in the sense that I would go specifically to an 800-year-old oak tree. I was working at the time in a school. This 800-year-old oak tree was on a small English estate between the school and my home. A few times a week, I would go visit, and I had set up an agreement with one of the, the people who ran the grounds, and he, he understood kind of what I wanted to do, and I wanted to spend time beside this tree, getting to know not just the ecology and the, the kind of movements of the various creatures that lived around this tree, but kind of getting to know the tree in a way that's often hard to narrate, really, to put into words. It was this project that I wanted to do over, over a longer period of time. I think we connect, I think, as humans with oak trees in particular uh, across the globe, and this was, this was something I wanted to kind of tap into. And so I would go there at different times of the day, different times of the night, dawn, dusk, that kind of thing, uh, the different seasons. As much as anything, I think, in terms of the, the important lessons, it reminded me so much of the importance of being outside. I think as humans, we, we easily forget that really we're made to be outside. We're made to be outside for the maximum amount of time in the day. But also the, the connection, the, the kind of deep spiritual connection, I would suggest, that exists between humans and trees. That again, I think, you know, is about tracing back into our, into our prehistory. Trees have always been really important to us, and I think they continue to be. And that was something that I really wanted to tap into in a paper. And you've written other books. And in your book, Ancient Wanderings, you pursued your fascination with ancient England, looking at physical traces left behind, such as stone circles, flint arrows, and sacred stones. How does the relationship of ancient people to the natural world help us to understand our present situation better? The subtitle to, to Ancient Wanderings, The Journeys into Prehistoric Britain, I wanted to, to get this idea that even though the distant past can feel a long, long way away, that you can still connect with it. If you put your mind to it, if you like, and if, if you kind of place yourself out there in the landscape and spend the time. So there were, there were a number of kind of activities that I did. It was going to the sites, going to stone circles, as you say, sacred stones, particular ones in particular that I've always kind of been fascinated by, and going as far off to the, the Outer Hebrides, the, what are known as the Western Isles of the northwest coast of Scotland, and spending time out there where you, you can kind of get away from, from the modern, from the present, and it gives you perhaps a better insight into some of the ways in which people were thinking as much as anything in the past. And, and yet, in terms of your question, I think it's very interesting. 
I'm, I'm very interested at the moment about the way in which we as people have forgotten to a certain extent a lot of the ways in which we existed as humans. You know, for for well over 95% of our existence as humans, we've, we've lived as hunter-gatherers, for example. And I'm really interested in, in seeing aspects of the ways in which that hunter-gatherer mindset still exists in us and ways in which we can kind of become healthier, happier people if we, if we kind of connect in with aspects of that ancient past, if you like. So what were some of the highlights from your travels for ancient wanderings? I'd say one of the one of the real highlights was um, I was tracing some activity up on on a Bronze Age site. So this is kind of a few thousand years ago out on the Outer Hebrides. So I went back to this site, a small village that had a certain amount of excavation that had taken place there. It's it's a little village now known by the Gaelic of Cladhallan. There'd been all kinds of interesting activity that had taken place there up in up in and a little island called South Uist, and I kind of camped out there on what we call the Maka, the kind of the, the wild meadowlands, and I spent a couple of weeks up there. Just really, I mean, I occasionally would speak to someone who was kind of beachcombing, but apart from that, really just, just tucked down in a tent and visiting the site. And one of the really intriguing aspects of what had been going on there, this incredible uh, activity, was that we realized, where well, the archaeologists had realized a, a few years before me, that there'd be, actually been, the inhabitants had been mummifying certain members of their society in very kind of elaborate and complex ways. Yet we often think, I think when we think about the distant past, we think of it as very primitive, kind of short, brutish lives. In fact, there's huge amount of complexity and ritual that we kind of often rely on our archaeologists to let us know about, but I think often it doesn't get out into the, the knowledge of the general public. So that was that was certainly one of my highlights, was spending time there, uh, camped beside this site where these people had been very intricately creating mummies, just as they had been in, in ancient Egypt, but in the western arts of Scotland instead. And in your new book... Grounded, a journey into the landscape of our ancestors, you share with us two carvings that have been found, the Lion Man and the, the Dagenham Idol. How do you see the importance of these two carvings? I think what I'd say is the Lion Man, for example, comes from the caves of southwest Germany and is 40,000 years old. And it's carved from ivory, from the tusk of a, of a young woolly mammoth. The Dagenham idol is carved from wood. It's got fur wood. It's 4,000 years old and was found in what's present-day East London or just outside East London. They're quite distant, both in time and in space, if you like. I'm not sure if, it is, if it's that sense that in the ancient past, say ancient Europe, for example, that we didn't have many idols, I think, just we don't know what the idols were, if you like. The Lion Man, just the most incredible figure, you know, I'd really suggest your listeners just do a quick search. You can find images of, of this figure very quickly, but it's this incredible conception of, of a being that is half human and half lion. If you remember, this is, this is carved in a cave 40,000 years ago. As soon as you look at this, this figure, 
it kind of changes your perspective. You think, well, they can't, they can't be that kind of primitive, kind of thuggish folk that we perhaps still have a kind of concept of. But perhaps they had a, you know, an incredibly complex mindset of what was going on. And, and obviously the, the mind that can conceive a, a mythical creature that is half human and half lion is, is certainly a mind worth exploring, if you like. The Dagonomidal, similarly, much, much uh, more recent, appears to have been some kind of figure, marker on the landscape. It was found in the stream when some workmen were digging out a stream. It's a wooden figure of a human, but there seems to have been damage, even in its lifetime or at the end of its lifetime, to, to one of the eyes, possibly deliberate damage to, to the left eye which again raises lots of kind of interesting notions of whether it was potentially associated with the, the figure of Odin or was it some other thing that was going on there. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating figure. And I think that the, the problem in terms of these idols or these figures is we just don't have many, so it's very hard to kind of know what to say in terms of the complexity of, of how the ancient mind was thinking. But the few we have, I think it's really worthwhile getting people to look at them and wonder at them a little bit, if you like. Can you describe some of your feelings that you have when you visit a sacred place? I mean, this is very much what I was attempting to do in the book, Grounded, the most recent book. And it's very much a journey into the landscapes of our ancestors. And this is, this is very much what I was kind of attempting to do. I think as much as anything, I was delving into the notion of what is sacred and how places can become sacred, what makes them sacred, what makes them kind of specially sacred, if you like. In the rural English countryside where I live, the obvious places to go to are our old churches and chapels, these kind of signs of religious belief. Even though they're often quite empty, they still have what the poet Philip Larkin would call this musty tense unignorable silence and I think that's a really good way of of describing any kind of sacred place the sense of an unignorable silence you know I would go to places in the natural landscape natural glades and places of wonder and they too I often think have this sense of of something special sense of an otherworldliness to them this kind of godliness to them a kind of uh, spiritual layering often. My intention was to go to these places and then kind of tune in as much as possible. Often it was the, the immediacy. I remember going to, in, in Lindsay, a small village in Suffolk, and it was in winter, it was in February, and it's a tiny little stone chapel, and there was, there was no one else around. kind of went into this place, and certainly the, there was this feeling of this unignorable silence, this kind of numinous essence of, of sacredness. Yeah, I mean, the feelings that I think that you get from these places are often really quite intense. And often it's, it's good if you can to, get, to go to them on your own. I recently was in California and went to a couple of indigenous sacred spaces. That, that can often be a really good thing if you can find the place. There was a place I went to called Grinding Stone in, in Volcano near the Sierra Nevada, and it was, that was just stunning. It was just a really beautiful, stunning sight. 
going to these places, often they are in, in beautiful spaces of, of nature as well. Often what you notice if you think of your own feelings is this kind of peacefulness, a kind of calm that exerts itself in the land. So do you see a significant difference between a sacred site and sacred ground? I think probably that might be one of those situations where it means different things to different peoples. The idea of a, of a sacred site to me can mean any place that, where humans have gathered, if you like, and have seen in, in some sense that there's a significant specialness to that site. I think to that same extent, you know, the idea of sacred ground, it's often that the idea is often used within the context of indigenous peoples. One of the quotes that kind of ran through the book Grounded was actually from Wendell Berry, who said, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. And I'm still kind of teasing out the ramifications of, of the meaning of that. So as we know, ancient people considered nature as a challenge. But in your book, we are beginning to learn that some of the sacred grounds were sites of celebration, where they found comfort and solace. You explore the relationship between hunter-gatherers and farmers and how that relationship might have evolved, where there is evidence of the two lifestyles coming together. How important is this? It's a fascinating notion to see this meeting in time between when the people we we move from a lifestyle based on hunter-gathering to a, a lifestyle based on farming. You know, that took place, set, let's just roughly say 6,000 years ago. In different parts of the world, there's a very different relationship and a very different time scale on when that took place. If we use the example of North America, you had up until what? I don't know, when you want to say 200 years ago, everyone was living by hunter-gathering in different kind of formats. The notion that we have, again, of hunter-gathering as this kind of, kind of clinical existence by kind of going out with spears and killing large animals, it's kind of way more nuanced than that. We now know a lot about the way in which Native American peoples were tending the wild. They were moving seeds, you know, around. They were kind of managing the landscape to a certain extent, but also very much in harmony with, with that landscape and with the natural world. In Britain, you've got to go a, a lot further back before you hit that divide between hunter-gatherers and farmers. And I've, I do find it fascinating. I mean, there's, we have to, again, we have to rely on the archaeologists, but you mentioned Coneybury Hill, this is a site that's about a mile away, 1.5 kilometers from Stonehenge, this raised bit of land. There, there appears to have been a single feast that took place there. A big pit was uncovered. But what they discovered there was from the analysis of the bones that was found in this pit, that there were clearly the people at this feast were kind of three groups of, of people that were linked with domesticated cattle. So these kind of early farming communities. And then there was this fourth group that were associated with red deer and even two beavers. And these appear to be one of the last groups of hunter-gatherer peoples in Britain. And you, you have this very kind of 
harmonious, apparently, meeting between these peoples out on this landscape before you've even got Stonehenge existing there. So it's a fascinating space. It's a fascinating space to explore these these sites such as Coneybury Hill, where we see these these two lifestyles coming together. The evidence is that it seems to have been a, a really important site because it, it shows us this final meeting 6,000 years ago. It's also such a good example of where we've had to rely on evolution of archaeological analyses of what you need in order to define these variances between these groups. It's been really interesting to see that kind of historical layering to the archaeology as well. Why do you think the transition from hunter-gatherer to farmers took place later in the UK than other places? The transition in Britain was after that transition had taken place in the Near East, in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And even in mainland Europe, the, the evidence is that the, that the movement across to farming was probably about a thousand years before it took place in Britain. As to why that actually is, is, uh, is very much conjecture. Uh, there's a sense in which these farming peoples were settled out in, in Northern Europe, but were not coming across what was by then water, the channel. And then as they did, they kind of came gradually. I mean, there's no evidence that it's been found that this was a kind of violent overthrow of lifestyle. It was a kind of gentle transition, as much as we can see. Obviously, in different parts of the world, you have a very different narrative of the shift from hunter-gathering lifestyles, which are way more harmonious and sympathetic to the other living creatures in that landscape than the farming peoples. If you want to try and understand what took place in Britain, you, you really are relying on your archaeologists to dig it up. Also in Grounded, you took us to Blick Mead near Stonehenge. What are some of the things that we are discovering from this site? Yeah, this is really fascinating, Stefan, because the site of Blick Mead being recognized now as absolutely kind of seminal to the emergence of Stonehenge. Stonehenge is absolutely iconic prehistoric structure in Britain, and Blick Mead is, is called the Cradle of Stonehenge. It's basically a sacred spring, so it's a gathering of water, drinkable water, that, would have, that was used by those hunter-gatherer people that were there on the Stonehenge landscape before the people that came in, the Neolithic people, and that built Stonehenge. It's this incredible site. I've been very fortunate to have gone down there a couple of times, talking to the, the lead archaeologist there, David Jacks, who's, who's absolutely fascinating. I mean, there's so many aspects to this spring. It has evidence going back 11,000 years, you know, right the way through, virtually to the last ice age, of people going there and kind of recognizing the site as something special. It's a site where the indigenous cattle of the, of the region, the orcs, you know, these huge kind of six-foot-high creatures, they would go there to drink. And it appears to be that the people who were then kind of very reliant on them were then kind of recognizing the importance of this site both to their to the oryx and also to themselves. 
one of the amazing things that David Jacks, in fact, David Jacks' mother discovered when they were down there a few years ago, was that if you put a flint, and of course flint is the essential tool material of ancient peoples, and if you put a flint into this spring water and leave it there for a few hours, there's an, an incredible rare algae that essentially, when you take the flint out, it turns pink. I just love this. You just kind of wonder what the effect would that have been on the ancient mind, say, 10,000 years ago when they discovered that this is a spring, that not only do you get oryx feeding at it, but you, can, you get the flint turning pink. I mean, that is magic, is it not? So, yeah, it's an incredible cyclic need. It really is. We're, we're just discovering some of the wonders of it. It's really only been discovered in the last few years. So it's really fascinating. It was the unity of the natural world with the human one that was so vital to so many ancient people and places. How important is that connection, and do you think we can regain it? Well, that is a very good question. Obviously, we've moved quite a long way from the, the notion of indigenous hunter-gathering as, an, as a people. All the evidence is that to support 8 billion people on, on the globe, hunter-gatherer is not the lifestyle that's going to do it. By having 8 billion people on the planet, the difficulty is, one, it puts enormous pressure on the planet itself, but also as, as individual humans, we do struggle with our connection with the natural world. Can we go back to the same connection we had with those, like those indigenous peoples did at Blick Mead 10,000 years ago? I think that's a way off, if you like. But what I think we can do, even as, as modern humans, is we can recognize the importance of having some connection with the natural world, and that is difficult if you live in the middle of a city, but you can still do it. And I think as much as anything, if we all step into a worsening kind of climate emergency, the recognition of ourselves as other living beings on a planet full of living beings, that connection, that intimacy, it's, it's vital. I mean, it's absolutely vital, not just to the future of humans on this planet, but to the future of the planet. So what are some of the other findings that you might want to share that you see as important connections from ancient people to the people of the present? I went to sites in Britain that are unknown for their hugely recognized sites of significance. We talk about Stonehenge, we talk about places like West Kennet, West Kennet Long Barrow, one of the structures, these kind of barrows that were built by these first farming communities, you can imagine these first farmers kind of wanting to kind of come in and clear the land of these stones and then forge with these stones some sort of collective space. But they weren't kind of mortuaries as such. It seems like the bones were placed in there and then bones were moved around. You might go and take bones and take them out for a while, put them back in. I think that's a really interesting idea, again, about just kind of changing the way that we see us as humans. I think anyone, any human, can, can go local and within a few mile radius of their, of their home where they live, they can find and seek 
the sacred spaces, the sacred places. I'd love to hear from you, your listeners. If they want to email me, easy enough to do if they just look on my website, jamescanton.co.uk. Email me with your, your sacred spaces. In your local environment, I think it's really interesting. And very quickly, you build up a kind of a map of your local landscape that is very different in terms of these sacred places than, than the one that perhaps you might imagine. I find it fascinating hearing the stories of others who will tell me often about a group of trees that they go to. You know, often these are, these are places that people use in their kind of daily life as a kind of ritual touchstone that kind of keeps them connected with the landscape, that keeps them connected with some otherness, some other kind of luminousness that makes us feel more real, makes us perhaps feel more important than our everyday lives. Do you think that these ancient people in their daily lives considered these places as sacred? We know that they built Stonehenge and made it a sacred place. Do you think in their daily lives that they really had this idea of sacredness? Yes, I think I do. I think I do, Stefan. I think they might have had a different sense of that, but I think if you go back into into the, the past, humans were spent a lot more time not just sort of stuck in a home, in a cave, whatever. They were outside on the natural world. And I think this is the, the emergence of sacredness, if you like. Whether it is the spring where the, the animals gather, like Blick Mead, or whether it's in a section of woodland that you come across a pond, a glade, the notion that, that people would recognize sites of sacred significance, I think. I think, yeah, it's something that unites us to, to what it is to be human. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with James Canton. And if you want to learn more about the work he is doing, please visit his website, jamescanton.com. I hope you will share this episode with friends, family, and colleagues, and that you will follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, or on our website, nordenproductions.com. The music for Nature Revisited is Buzz and Fly by Tim Buckley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are Nature. Thank you.